I wanted to start by talking about growing up in Isleta for you and your introduction to books and reading. Isleta, when I was growing up, was uh, a colonia uh, right on the outskirts of El Paso. And that just means it was you know, an unincorporated part of the, of the city. It didn't have electricity and it didn't have running water. We had to go to sort of a main place in the neighborhood <laughs> to get water. And it's probably less than half a mile from the border. I can actually see the Saragossa International Bridge from my parents' house. And my parents still live in the same place, but it's become a suburb. Over time, the El Paso annexed uh, Isleta. They paved the road. But, you know, as a kid, I loved, loved to read. And I stuck out a little bit in Isleta. You know, there were a couple of gangs in Isleta, Calavera and Contra Barraca. You know, our side was Barraca, and that just means shacks. And Calavera, the other side of a canal, there were a lot of irrigation canals going to cotton fields. The other side was a cemetery. They had a cemetery there, and that's why they called it Calavera. So, I, you know, I, I was this, this kind of fat little kid who loved to read, you know, and my mother, I think, both of my parents were from Mexico, from Juarez, and, and they came over and, and just bought this piece of land because it was cheap. And my mother, I think, to her great credit, would give me whatever few dollars every Friday or so, and I would order from the Scholastic Book Club. And every Friday at South Loop School, they would pass out the books that you would order weeks before. And I amassed hundreds, probably thousands, of these little paperback books Everything from mysteries to peanuts, you know, uh, Charles Schultz to short stories, novels. I just simply loved to read. And, and you know, some of it came, uh, I guess, from my parents. There was a lot of influences. My grandfather was a very famous uh, Mexican journalist in Juarez. In fact, he had a big avenue named after him. And, and he came over in the 50s, and so he was a big reader and then my abuelita on my mother's side would tell these great stories about Pancho Villa coming into Chihuahua. She lived in a little ranch called El Charco, which is literally the puddle. And she would tell these stories on her porch, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes, about how Villa would ride into El Charco and in, in the División del Norte and uh, string up bankers and lawyers, because apparently Villa hated these people. And, you know, how charismatic he was. And, and I would bike all the way to her house, which was in downtown El Paso, and it's probably about 15 miles, to hear these stories. So I think whether it was actually reading from these scholastic books or hearing these oral stories from my grandmother or hearing about the newspaper business from my grandfather on my father's side, I had a lot of influences in terms of reading. And so I was an outlier in that what people in New York now say was a quote-unquote uh, a disadvantaged or at-risk community. But I, I never saw it that way. I loved this letter. Talk more about your somewhat radical, rabble-rousing, very literate <laughs> grandfather, Santiago Troncoso. Right. He was editor and publisher of one of the first, I believe it is the first daily in Juarez, Mexico, in the 1920s and 30s, you know, during the Flores Magón era, etc. And he edited and published uh, El Dia, and we have copies of, of, you know, these huge kind of archival copies of, of his paper. And he would write, you know, these anti-corruption articles against the government and 
They threw him in jail something like 50 times and burned his print shop down three or four times. I mean, nowadays, they probably would have just killed him. The El Paso Times, when he was alive in the 1970s, did a profile on him. It's interesting because when he was editor and a newspaper journalist in Juarez, they hated him. They hated his guts. But, you know, once he moved out and became an American citizen, and then after he died, they named the street after him and honored him and all this. You know, they made him sort of into a, a hero of freedom of the press, but while he was alive, they detested him because he, I think, in in many ways was a truth teller, and, and maybe in some ways things haven't changed that much in Mexico. Maybe they just have gotten more violent. But he, he would tell me, and, you know, he died when I was in high school, and at that time I was editor of the powwow, which is the school newspaper at Isleta High School, and my sister had been editor of the paper as well. So she's the one who who brought me in. She was uh, three years older. When I was a freshman, she was editor as a senior. And so she brought me in, and we had a terrific journalism advisor, Pearl Crouch, who, who later died of cancer. But she had such an influence on my life because in many ways she reminded me of of the toughness of my grandfather and my abuelita on my mother's side. You know, she was no-nonsense. She believed in writing about the truth. And so anyway, when I would talk to my grandfather, Santiago, you know, about becoming a journalist, and, and Pearl Crouch wanted me to apply to Columbia University because she said, you know, you're a good writer. You can go anywhere. You don't have to stay in Texas. You go to Stanford. You go to Yale. You could go to Harvard. You should go to Columbia if you want to be a journalist. That's the best journalism school. Well, my grandfather, Santiago, said, you know, don't become a journalist. People will hate you if you tell the truth. And that was his advice that I never forgot. And it didn't necessarily deter me, but I think, you know, he he was somewhat bitter, but on the other hand, I don't think he would have done it any other way. I wanted to talk about Pearl Crouch in, in more detail a bit later as a way to introduce your very colorful abuelita. I was hoping that we could take this copy of From This Wicked Patch of Dust and turn to page 90. And, of course, this is the, the fictional version of you, Ismael, right. just having been admitted to Harvard University. And uh, his abuelita is, of course, proud of him, but a little suspicious of him going so far away from his familia. And the reason I love this so much is because <laughs> it shows what a, she was not only a, a great character, very inspirational, but also, in retrospect, really funny, too. Don't go. What are you going to do so far away from your familia? Doña Josefina said with a catch in her throat. It's the best school in the country, abuelita. I have to go. I want to go. In the living room that faced the red brick tenements across the street, Don Pedro soaked his feet and dropped tablets of salt into the hot water. The old man wiggled his toes, grinned into the warm light night air, and gently closed his eyes. Doña Josefina heated a quesadilla, oozing with monster cheese on her skillet on the stove, while Ismael slowly munched on a quesadilla quarter at the table. You don't know anybody in Boston. By the time you come back, your grandfather and I will be buried in the hot sand. Stay in El Paso and go to college here like Panchito. Abuelita, did you know that President Kennedy went to that school? Senators and presidents and very famous people have gone to Harvard. It cost more than 10,000 
dollars per year to go to this school. Jesús, María y José, puros malditos ricachones. You'll be poor and alone if you go there. They sat down on her porch just outside the living room in the darkness. Doña Josefina's face was momentarily lit when she struck a match to light her cigarette. She hunched over and stared at the concrete floor. The hump on her back was almost as high as her head. They're giving me una beca, abuelita. This school will change my life. What do I know about these things, Mayelo? I'm just a poor Mexicana with nothing but this viejo in the living room with his stinky feet. What are your parents going to do without you? First Marcos, then Julieta, and now you. I know we don't count for anything, but I say don't go. I'll miss everybody too, but I'll be back for Christmas and for the summer, Abuelita. It's the best school in the United States. You'll come back a different person. Worse, you won't want to come back after you see everything out there. Why would you want to come back to this horrible nada? Abuelita, that's not true. I'll be back. I'll call you every week on the weekends when it's cheaper. I'll learn so much. Nobody at Isleta has ever gone to Harvard. At least no one that the teachers can remember. It's a great honor, mijo. We know that. I'm sure everyone in Isleta is proud of you. But this is who you are, she said for a moment, scanning the dark night air and the empty street. A cricket chirped in the darkness. God help you when you go to this Harvard. You will be so far away from us, from everything you know. You will be alone. What if something happens to you? Who's going to help you? But you always wanted to be alone. You were always so independent, so stubborn. Like you. Ay, Dios. Just remember your familia, Mayelo. Go, but come back, Doña Josefina said sadly, taking a quesadilla quarter from the plate on the ground. She handed the rest to Ismael. She stared at the screen door for a moment, her lazy eye ablaze in a red light as she inhaled her cigarette. Pedro, get up and wash the dishes. This hombre is unbelievable. He will sleep all day if I let him. Get up before I go in there with a broomstick and smash it on your head, viejo apestoso. Oiga, señora, a raspy voice proclaimed on the other side of the screen door. Don't you know that you're talking to one of the kings of Harvard? Ahora verás, cabrón. They throw you in the trash at Harvard. That I know. Well, she certainly didn't mince words. <laughs> no, she was, she was, you know, I mean, it, it's, a, it's fiction. You know, the novel is definitely fiction. But, you know, some, some of them are more true to life to, you know, to people I knew. And certainly my abuelita was an amazing inspiration. In fact, the very first story I ever wrote was about Doña Dolores. Talk more about her, Doña Dolores Rivero. She was quite a person in her life. She uh, she lived in El Segundo Barrio, which is, you know, one of the poorest areas near downtown El Paso. She grew up in, in you know, in rural Chihuahua. The lore among our family is that she had shot and killed two men who had attempted to rape her during the revolution. She was a teenager, a, a sort of an older teenager during the revolution, and she was always very tough. She had to grow up, you know, in a very difficult time when a lot of her brothers had been killed during the, the conflict. She was a single mother in rural Chihuahua and brought up my mother, her 
sister Rosa and an uncle. All three of them brought brought them up by by herself. And my mother tells these stories of you know I didn't have a pair of shoes until I was 13. And Doña Dolores sit around and 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 just give you so much good advice. I, in fact, I think I was closer to her than I was to my parents during my teenage years. And in fact, there was almost almost on every weekend. I would go from Isleta, which is on the far east of El Paso, and, and go on my bike and go to downtown El Paso, about 15 miles down Alameda Street, and it would take me hours to get there. And then I would spend the weekend with Doña Olores because I loved hearing her stories. I loved spending Saturday night there with her, and and then the neighbors would come over. She lived in a in a little apartment building, and people really respected her. It's interesting how these people from the neighborhood understood, you know, how powerful her stories were. On Saturday nights, you know, the, it was cool and, and beautiful in El Paso, and you could see all the stars, and there must have been 10, 15 people all sitting around Doña Olores's porch, smoking, drinking coffee, telling stories, and listening to her stories, and laughing, you know, passing around bizcochos. And so I think a lot of this oral storytelling I got from her. And she was also, you know, as you can tell, a very tough character. You know, she wouldn't take any BS from anybody. And believe me, she ran that household. <laughs> no, no, but everyone was scared of her, including my mother and my father. You know, they just if you crossed her, you would get it right in the face. You know, you just and it's not. I think one of you know I've, I've written essays about her because she was not. I, I, I would say she was very righteous. And it's a very, I think you you have to understand her character and, and, you know, some of these people who are like this. She was not ever interested in abusing you or dominating you in a negative way. But if she saw something that she felt was not truthful or if you were cutting corners or having moral lapses, she would point it out to you and she would not let you go until you corrected it. So that kind of righteousness, I think, is, is something that I just loved and appreciated and and I just knew you know people respected her for that and that's why they went to listen to her stories and you know till the day she died she was one of the most popular persons in that building and it's not because she sought it out you know I think I learned a lot about morality and she would say it's better to be right than to be liked and she would say that to me all the time when I was at Harvard freshman year and I felt like a complete outsider in Cambridge, I would call her. In fact, I would call her more than my parents. And she, you know, she would kind of straighten me out and say, you know, Sergio, you show them who you are. Don't quit. You know, I wanted to quit. I was really alone, missed my family. And she would, you know, get me going and say, you know, you show them who you are. You show them your mind. You know, you show them what a Mexicano can do. So I remember those conversations I had with her. And, and you know, it was really... Um, devastating to me eventually when she died uh, because, you know, she was probably the most important person for me in my family. And in fact, uh, when I was a graduate student at Yale uh, in philosophy, the very, very first story I wrote was called The Abuelita. And it was about this uh, Yale graduate student, you know, who's reading Heidegger. I love German philosophy and also the ancient Greeks, and I was doing my dissertation on the ancient Greeks. This Chicano from from Yale calls her his abuelita and talks about Heidegger with her, and and of course she doesn't know Heidegger. She's she's a Mexicana and she's never read Heidegger, but she understands the gist of the argument, and actually can you know in that story 
gives a retort to how you would actually criticize Heidegger in a philosophical seminar, which is, you know, Heidegger was obsessed with philosophy and, and abstractions. And, you know, she tells the graduate student that she kind of graduate student, she says, you know, get out of your books. You know, you're more than just, you know, your mind, you know, your flesh and blood, you need to, you know, go and have fun. And, and that, that is sort of the appropriate re- response to somebody like Heidegger in Being in Time, where people get lost in the mental world and forget that you're flesh and bone, that love is important, that caring is important, that the simple things that somebody like Heidegger would disparage, like being friendly to people and shaking their hand and being a good person, that those are valuable too. So she was a a great influence on my life, and she still is. You know, I, I feel like I can conjure up what she would probably say in a certain situation. And I have recordings of her, by the way, before she died you know, I would sit around and, and say, I need to record your abuelita. So I have recordings of conversations I've had with her. You mentioned another tough but very inspirational lady in your early life. And I, I wish I had known her when I was a high school student, Pearl Crouch. Yeah, you know, she was an amazing human being. Not just a good teacher, but a great teacher. In fact, she had won national awards by, you know, the National Journalist, uh, High School Journalist Society. You know, what she was doing in Isleta, <laughs> I don't know, but thank God for that. She was this tough lady who was head of the yearbook and head of the, the newspaper, you know, at publications at Isleta High School. And, and Isleta High School was a very poor, is a very poor high school. You know, in, in my time, probably half the kids did not even go to college, and it's right on the border. It was also a school with a lot of pride and, and a lot of culture and, and um, you know, 98% probably Mexicano. And Pearl Crouch, you know, brought me in. Well, my sister, who was editor, she said, you know, the best department in this high school, my sister was, was a, a senior when I became a freshman, and my sister, you know, uh, Diana, gave me really good advice. She said, you know, you want to be in publication. You want to be either on the yearbook or on in the newspaper because we have this really good advisor. Her name is Pearl Crouch. And so when I was a, f- a freshman, which they never allowed freshmen into the newspaper that early, because my sister was editor of the paper, Pearl Crouch allowed me to be in the newspaper staff. And I, you know, I did simple stories, newspaper stories, that kind of thing. But the training began early. And the thing with Pearl Crouch is when you would turn in a story, or a layout for a, a a page, if she didn't like it, you know, she was a lot like my abuelita. She was a truth teller. She would tell you, no, this is not good enough. You know, this lead, you need to rework it. She would just, not because she was mean and not because she was burned out, but because she cared. She cared so deeply about teaching kids, about becoming better writers, better thinkers, about respecting yourself. You know, if you're going to put out a product and it's going to have your name on it, it better be the absolute best you can do. Coming in at 6 in the morning in high school, you got to do it. Staying, you know, after till 6, 7, 8 p.m., you know, after school is out at 3 p.m. to put out a good newspaper, you have to do it. And she was there. So she was an amazing teacher. You know, as I started going up the ranks in, in, in the newspaper, sophomore year, and, and, and I won an award sophomore year for a story I did on on how uh, poor districts in Texas were penalized because of the, the way they, they got tax rates uh, and how they got funded, you know, and, and, and so the question was, how does a poor, poor district like Isleta make do, you know, when, when you're faced with, with this sort of funding source? And by the way, things have not really changed that much, but it won an award in Austin, and then, you know, Pearl Crouch started pushing me up the 
becoming a, a editorial editor, and I was very outspoken. And she said, you know, we need to take you to writing conferences uh, around the, the, the country. And I, I thought she meant like El Paso. <laughs> but, you know, she, I hadn't been to the fancy places in El Paso, but she took me sophomore year to compete in a writing competition at Columbia University in New York, if you can believe that. It was just shocking to me to go to New York, you know, these, this rural kid suddenly uh, competing in, in, in writing competitions in New York City at Columbia University. And I went to Sardi's, you know, the famed restaurant on Broadway, and she took me to a chorus line. So she opened my eyes. She said, Ingo, anywhere. And then the next year, junior year, she took me to a writing competition in San Francisco, you know, for high school writers. Probably the most important thing she did for me was... Between junior and senior years in high school, she said, you should apply to this program called the Blairstown Summer School for Journalism. It's the best high school journalism program in the summer. Your writing will take a leap forward. And they chose, I think, two people from each state. She recommended me, and, and I sent in my, my material, and they chose me. And I got a full scholarship to go to New Jersey to this program called the Blairstown Summer School for Journalism. And it was Six weeks of intensive writing with other high school journalists all across the country. You know who my roommate was? My roommate was Akiva Goldsman, who later won an Oscar for A Beautiful Mind for writing the screenplay. And so Kiwi and I became good high school buddies, you know, back then. And so there were a lot of journalists, very famous journalists, very famous, you know, people who became writers and in other ways, uh, historians who came out of that program. And it was all due to Pearl Crouch. You know, I would never have even probably gotten out of El Paso had it, had it not been for her influence. So these high school teachers that somehow give 150% of their time and effort and, and help you open your eyes and just care, you know, give you the time to improve your work. You know, and I, and I, t I tell, you know, when I teach my kids, I, I'm very tough. And I say, you know, I'm tough because it matters to me that you produce good work. And I think that's what I learned from people like Pearl Crouch or even my abuelita. You know, the best teachers are not the ones who coddle you. They're the ones who push you, who won't accept crappy work, you know, who will demand the best from you because they care of who you are and what you can be. And they see your potential. Another inspirational teacher of yours, once you did get to Harvard, was John Womack. John Womack was this, this kind of elusive but brilliant historian. What happened when I went to Harvard was that I arrived a Chicano, and you know suddenly um, I'm shocked that no one else speaks Spanish. I'm shocked that people aren't bilingual. I assumed the whole country was bilingual. You know that's how naive I was. In fact, when I got accepted to Harvard, uh, I thought it was near Chicago. <laughs> you know, I mean, I had no idea. And I get to Harvard. You know, I'm spending probably. Every day, studying till midnight, till one, till the library's closed, because I was terrified. I was terrified that I was going to fail. You know, my parents have sacrificed so much. They didn't have money, and I'm borrowing money, and I'm working to be at this place and barely making it, and I, I can't fail. But what bothered me was that I knew next to nothing about where I was from. You know, in Texas, they don't teach you about Mexico in the high school history curriculum, uh, or they teach you so little. You know, I lived at less than half a mile from Mexico. My parents were Mexican. My whole culture was Mexican. And I get to Harvard, and I know nothing about Latin America, Mexico, my history. And it got me angry. And so one of the things that I studied at Harvard, in fact, I spent four years, 
was studying uh, Latin American history, studying Latin American economics, Mexican history, Mexican politics. And so my major was in government, but I did a lot of economics as well. You know, I found this, this among many other professors, just John Womack. You know, John Womack eventually became chairman of the history department at Harvard. He was this Oklahoman, the only guy at Harvard Square that I would run into who was wearing cowboy boots and jeans and, you know, a tough-talking, brilliant guy who got his doctorate from Harvard and was a Rhodes Scholar. And he didn't care about any of the pretensions of Harvard or Yale or whatever, although he was a brilliant guy. He was a you know, Westerner, and I think that's the other thing that I found appealing. So I took one of his courses sophomore year, and I did very well, and it was a huge survey course. And and he was an intimidating guy because he had written this book that I, I consider the best history book on Latin America called Zapata and the Mexican Revolution, which is a beautifully written standard on that era. And uh, and it's not just beautifully written and reads like a novel, but it, his exhaustive research, you know, he went through every Mexican archive at the time and just took it out. And, and in Mexico, it's been translated into Spanish. It is considered this, probably the standard on Zapata, you know, even among Mexicans. So then the junior year, I took this seminar with him. And also as well, I, I took another seminar with him senior year. And these seminars are much smaller, 10... 15 people, and it was very intimidating. It was a lot of a lot of work, and it was on Mexico and Mexican history. And you know what? I think one of the things Womack cared about is he cared about poor people. He cared about los de abajo, the people who are who are suffering, and and trying to understand why it is that, that from from his point of view they started an armed conflict, and and who you know what was the, where were the people like from Ananequilco, Zapata's hometown. And why did they want to rebel? And what had forced them? What are the big forces, the plantations and politicians that had forced these people to react in such a violent way? He was about social justice. He cared about the people I cared about, the people who reminded me of my parents, of my abuelita. And he was also extremely demanding, John Womack. You know, he like just like Pearl Crouch, you wouldn't take crappy work. And if you turned it in, you know, you were going to get it, period. And there was no hiding in a little seminar of 10 people. So I, I wrote this piece. I had gone to, I had, Harvard had given me a summer scholarship to do research in Mexico between junior and, and senior year at Harvard. And so I did a lot of research at UNAM and El Colegio de Mexico. And, and it, you know, that was sort of an adventure in itself because I had never been to Mexico City. I had never been anywhere but Juarez. And I took a bus from Juarez to Mexico City, you know, over 24 hours. That was an awful ride with chickens and cages and all sorts of things. And, and I got a, an apartment from a friend, from somebody my sister knew, you know, for the summer in Mexico City. And, I, you know, I was this kid doing research in in Mexico City, you know, and I was uh, not... But, you know, you had to throw yourself into these things. So I did, did this research, and then the next year I did this um, Mexico seminar with, with John Womack. And it was on the labor movement, and I sort of presented my research. I had done a lot of work and wrote about recent trends in the labor movement and a particular aspect of it. And when he gave me back my paper, it's probably the the moment at Harvard where, and, and you know, this was three years after the fact, after I had been there, where I felt I belonged. He gave me an A, and he said, this is the best paper I've gotten in this seminar. 
in five years. And he was very sparing with his accolades, so to speak. And so it really meant a lot to me that I had proven myself to him because, you know, it's, he's, he's the kind of person you really want to, to do a good job for because you, you know what he stands for and you know what his standards are. He was a great mentor and he, gr- he wrote a lot of my uh, recommendations. But that's what you had to find. You had to find these great teachers at different points in your life, whether it's a Pearl Crouch in high school or a John Womack. And then you had to rise up to the challenge, to their good standards to work hard, to sacrifice. You know, other other kids were getting drunk at Harvard and partying and doing all this stuff, and I was in the library reading and trying to push myself and improve myself, trying to improve my English so that it, it would be better. So you have to sacrifice. You have to sacrifice a lot, and I owe a lot to all these teachers. You mention a number of writers and philosophers that inspired you as a writer and also as a scholar. I was particularly interested in Joseph Conrad mm-hmm. for several reasons, not the least of which was that English was not his first language. But talk a little bit about Joseph Conrad and about Heart of Darkness and how that inspired you. When you read Heart of Darkness and Joseph Conrad, what I get is almost the poetic prose. It's a beautifully written novel. It's a small novel. Every sentence, every phrase, and it flows. Once you understand Joseph Conrad's background, that his, you know, English was probably his third or fourth language, you understand that, you know, he really worked hard to get his written English in such a perfect way and and in such a it's such a beautiful cadence, and and it's also a, the more important than the fancy language. It's not even fancy. It's more, I would call it more spare language, but the spare beauty of Heart of Darkness. More important than that is that it is a book that is important in what it is saying and the many things it is saying. It's not saying one thing. As a philosopher, that's always what has mattered to me. Not just writing beautifully about a flower on the street or whatever it is or or a scene but what are you talking about what are you saying what 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 new way or new idea are you giving to the reader to open up his or her mind and so it is not just the way you say it but what you are saying that matters to me and i think the heart of darkness is one of those books in which it gets it all right and it's very difficult to get it all right because there are some people whom i admire as stylist at beautiful writers but who really are talking about nonsense <laughs> you know n- nothing you would that would change your mind or change your life or give you a new perspective and then there are other people like somebody like Heidegger whom I read a lot in, in graduate school who is a really a terrible writer Heidegger if you read being in time it is so dense and it's so difficult to understand and it's awfully written in German but he, what he was saying opened up so many minds. It was so revolutionary what he was saying. So what he was saying was the content was very important, and it still is. That's why people read Heidegger. But he didn't say it in a, in a particularly interesting or beautiful way. Someone like Nietzsche, for example, again, like Conrad, combines them. His prose in German, Nietzsche's prose in German, is beautiful. He was a wonderful writer, and what he's saying is also revolutionary and, and opens up your mind to a new way of thinking about things. So so I think that's why one of the things I loved about Conrad is he's one of those writers that gets it right from the content side as well as from the stylistic side. Right here on page one of Crossing Borders, 
you okay. really just dive right into <laughs> your cross-cultural questions of identity, specifically with your wife, who comes from an observant Jewish family. But it's much more complicated than that, as you point out here. And I was hoping you could read for us. Sure. I understand it is perilous to cross to the other side, whatever that other side is. You traverse into a no-man's land. You leave your home, impossibly risk alienating those who stayed behind. I have been asked by many Latino writers and friends if I am now Jewish. I I know often there is an undercurrent of surprise and even anger, at least by the most weak or fearful-minded when I proudly tell them about my wife, Laura, and my children. I was at a Latino book festival recently, at a restaurant with four writers. We were discussing the links and differences between Judaism and Christianity, a discussion I had prompted. I turned to a poet who had been quiet for most of the evening and pointed out that the artist on her T-shirt, Frida Kahlo, was half Jewish, and half Mexican Catholic. The poet, a proud Mexicana, seemed stunned at first, and then looked at her t-shirt as if she were looking at it for the first time. Yes, I said, we create pure beginnings to simplify things, maybe to build our self-esteem, but in reality, we are interrelated, mestizo, in more ways than we can imagine. We could talk about this very subject as well as many of your other subjects for hours, but talk a little bit about this interesting identity shift and the mixing of cultures between your adopted Judaism and, of course, the fact that you are a Chicano Catholic. It was because of love. (laughs) What can I tell you? It was, you know, I fell in love with this beautiful woman, Laura, who I met at Harvard. She thought I was Greek, and I thought she was English. And so we were both completely wrong. It's really about two people who fall in love with each other and recognize that the other side, whatever that other side is, really have things to teach them about being better people, be better human beings. And, you know, Laurita, for example, you know, she's Jewish, and she, you know, her family's from Boston, and they're a great family. Her father grew up Orthodox, but actually didn't like, you know, growing up so in such a harsh uh, environment. And so he he's probably, I would call them, you know, Reformed Jews. I would not call them, uh, you know, that, obser- you know, somewhat observant, I would say, but not, not strictly observant. You know, Laurita was, you know, I would say in Spanish, muy suavecita, you know, the nicest person you could imagine. I'm kind of an SOB sometimes and tough. And she, when she went to Isleta, you know, she wowed my parents. She is fluent in Spanish and Portuguese. In fact, as as I tease a lot of my Latino writer friends, she's her Spanish is, is almost always better than theirs. <laughs> you know, she is completely fluent, and I don't mean just talking. She, she'll, she can write Spanish. And, and so my parents loved her for that. And in many ways, when she goes back to Isleta, and we go back several times a year, she fits better in the neighborhood than I do. She'll sit out on the porch with my parents drinking coffee, and my father has this thing called, he called it La Hora Social, where he literally just like in the evening, you sit on the porch and drink coffee and talk, you know, 
turn off the TV, turn off you know the, the Game Boy or whatever it is that you're working on. And L- Laura loves this. She absolutely loves this. She thinks it's a much more humane way of living. And of course, you know, it, it bothers the hell out of me. I want to do something. I want to get out. I want to go running. So it's interesting that we grew up in very different cultures, but we also see eye to eye on so many things. You know, one of the things that I appreciate from Laura's family, and I know she appreciates from us, is how close we are to our families, how much we we give and, and, and do for our brothers and our sisters and our parents. You know, in that way, we see eye to eye. And so I think, you know, this sort of melding of, of, of religions. You know, we I, I go to High Holy Day services with her, and Laura has gone to posadas with me in Isleta. And when we got married, we had a, a rabbi and a priest marry us. You know, there are so many things that I've learned from watching her family and how, how they function. And I know she's learned a lot from watching my family and how we function. And there are a lot of commonalities. So we've been married 21 years and uh, have two great boys. We're we're this sort of new world, I guess, of uh, crossing cultures, crossing borders. And sometimes it's been tough. You know, I've detailed some of this stuff in the book. You know, at the very beginning, you know, her parents, especially her mother, you know, did not like that I was not Jewish because it mattered to them. It didn't matter to to Laura, and it and certainly didn't matter matter to her sister. It didn't marry, matter to her brother, and many other people in that family. But to certain people in the family, it mattered a lot. But over time, she she knew. You know, I loved her daughter, and and I was going to stay with her, and I was a good husband, and and I was a good father to the kids, and and over time, you know, all of this, many of the differences at least, melted away we've been able to create something unique. And by the way, in New York, this is almost the norm. You know, we have friends who are Pakistanis, who have married Indians. You know, we, across the hall, we, you know, we have another, uh, you know, uh, an Argentine who married a, a Jewish lady. So this sort of cross-cultural, interfaith, multiracial families that we're creating, I think is in some ways what's the future and what is more normal, certainly in a place like New York where it's it's just not, uh, you don't even need to, to think about it anymore. Possibly when we go to El Paso, you know, it's it's a, somewhat of an issue. But even in El Paso, we've been to the Jewish Food Festival, so where you have knishes with chili in it. There's been a synagogue in El Paso since the late 19th century. So, you know, all this stuff we've sort of discovered uh, over time. Another area that you mention, which is so ripe for more scholarly exploration is the possible, and I emphasize possible, Sephardic Ladino roots of the name <laughs> Trancoso or possibly Trancoso. Right. Talk a little bit about that. A few years ago, an engineer from Oracle Systems wrote to me out of the blue, and he had found my work and, and found my book, and his, he had the same last name that I had, Troncoso. And he, he lives in Texas. And he had spent a lot of his life researching our last name. And he found out that, you know, he, we come from a similar town in Guanajuato. We may be distant cousins. And Troncoso is, is an uncommon name. It's not a very common name in Mexico. There are a few Troncosos, but, you know, not like a Martinez or Sanchez or something like that. And so he sent me this research paper. He had been to... Spain many times through the archives of Spain and uh, different archives of the Catholic Church, uh, different archives in Mexico, and he found out that 
Troncoso is Sephardic in origin, and that in 1492, in the archives, in, in the one, some of the main archives in Madrid of the Catholic Church, it is listed as one of the Sephardic families that have been expelled to the New World. So uh, my wife, when I showed her the research paper and I told her, you know, look at this, I said, oh, now I understand the attraction. So, you know, I definitely have, I think, some sort of Sephardic ancestry in me, in Troncoso. And my, my mother's side is Martinez. I don't know what, you know, what the ancestry is from, from that side of the family. But, it, you know, it's, we, we are all interrelated. And Andalusia, you know, southern Spain, when there was this flourishing of culture, you know, during the high, the high point of Andalusia. Because once people, I told people, you know, I may have some Sephardic roots. And, and then I found another book in Sangre Judía. It's a book uh, re- written by Pierre Bonim, I believe, B-O-N-I-M, in Spain, a journalist. And it's sold out about through eight editions because apparently a lot of Spaniards are looking at their Sephardic origins. But Troncoso is also listed there among the thousands of Sephardic families in Spain. At that point, in 1492, you were either asked to convert either by force. If you didn't convert, sometimes they killed you. Sometimes people converted truthfully. They said, we're going to become Catholic. We don't want to be killed or expelled. And sometimes people converted, but didn't really convert and would still keep the practices inside the closet or lighting menorahs or, or that kind of thing. So I think in Spain there is a, a more openness to look at your ancestry and where it came from. And I think we should all be doing that because, you know, this idea of there's some sort of pure beginning for us, uh, I think it's very destructive. It's very destructive for um, the politics of this nation. You know, we should be trying to find out how we have commonalities and how we can improve on each other by reaching out and finding out about different cultures and different religions instead of saying, uh, you know, we just want Americans to look like this, X, Y, Z. And when somebody's a, a, a new immigrant, you know, he doesn't look like us, he doesn't talk like us, that we suddenly start excluding them, making them feel less, or even worse, beating them up. So I think it's very destructive, this sense that, and, and false, that we're somehow all pure in some way, in some pure beginning. You know, this country's been a country of immigrants and of mixing cultures and mixing religions. And that's been true for a long time. And it's just these fantasies we create to somehow give us a better sense of self, but I think a false sense of self. You know, there there are no pure beginnings. And so, anyway, this sort of Sephardic ancestry is interesting. I don't know how far back it goes. And, I, you know, I, I would love to find out. I think I would love to go to Spain and, and do some research myself. But, you know, Andalusia, the great thing about Andalusia, during its heyday, Cordova and Sevilla and Granada, it was a flourishing of culture and art when Jews and Christians and Muslims all mixed together read each other's works, helped each other out, and it, it is considered almost like a renaissance in Spain. You know, we, we received, a lot of people don't know this, but we, the reason we can read Aristotle now is because of Andalusia. Aristotle was in Muslim archives in, in Arabic, and it was translated in Andalusia into, uh, I believe it was Latin. And that's how we were able to find Aristotle, you know, the philosopher <laughs> that is the, the, the crux of, 
of philosophy in, in the Western world. We got it through translation from Muslim archives because no one in the West had it you know, before that time. So I think this, this sense of translation reaching out across borders, across languages, it opens up opportunities. And sometimes people don't understand that because they, they're too narrow-minded. You touch on very lightly on a politically volatile issue. I know it's something that has definitely come up here in Houston. Here on page 76. On the crossing borders? Yes, on crossing borders. And you're talking about the gradual acceptance of some Latinos into the sort of mainstream of American life, however you define that. We still ignore the many issues of immigration. Well, we have begun to embrace Latino culture because, first, this acceptance is at at its beginning and most superficial phase. We can lionize the extremely beautiful and exceptionally talented Latinos, whether they be Chicanos from California or Puerto Ricans from the Bronx, more easily than we can have a meaningful discussion about the irrational fears of non-Latinos to the growing Latino community. These fears even come from the African-American community, where some believe in a zero-sum political game, that the growth of Latino influence and power will translate into less influence and power for that community. The recent mayoral election in Los Angeles is a case in point. Wow, have you hit on an important (laughs) issue, especially today with the recession? The recession, of course, disproportionately affecting minorities. The interesting thing is this essay was written in 2001 during, I would probably call, a more positive time for Latino acceptance. And, you know, things got worse after that point with people like Lou Dobbs and others attacking undocumented workers. And, and of course, as you mentioned, you know, the recession and our stagnation economically is shrinking our pie. And so people are fighting it out a little harsher. What happens in the economy is going to eventually change what happens in the culture. And, you know, if, you, if we were flourishing, if, if, our econo- if our unemployment rate were 5% rather than 9%, I'm sure you would have a less kind of... Uh, aggressive tone against immigrants because you would need the labor you would want you know you would want them here and as the economy has gotten worse the rhetoric i think has gotten worse but i think you know they're they're trying to you know the people who are very anti-immigrant and anti you know undocumented workers fail to often i think point out you know all the advantages you get from you know from using cheap labor you know certainly com- american companies are constantly using cheap labor you see this in the paso you see this in new york you know people with nannies and people who clean their houses and why do they have why are they undocumented workers because they can pay them less this idea that somehow it's just a one way street that they're using us and that you know we're just uh victims of these people coming over from across the country that's not true you know, we're using them. We use them all the time. You know, I, I wrote a piece in which I would go to the uh, Victoria's Secret store right here. You know, I walk by it every day in front of in front of my building, and there are these three Mexicanos, all undocumented workers, rebuilding the sidewalk in front of Victoria's Secret. And I am sure they're not paying them very much money to do this. And I talked to them, and I, I, I said hello. This happened a few years ago. 
And at the same time, you know, we're attacking undocumented workers and, 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 and saying, get out of this country, you know, you're just parasites, etc. But there you have a major company, you know, their beautiful sidewalks are being built by Mexicanos. You know, they're being exploited. You know, you don't see the other side of what they contribute, the work ethic, unbelievable work ethic that they contribute. And of course, there's always a few people here and there who commit crimes and, and do things that they shouldn't do. But I believe when you just focus on the people who commit one crime and say, look at what this Mexicano did, you're painting a, a false picture of the entire community because they don't commit crimes at a higher rate than the general population. But if you are just simply pointing out the people who, who do do bad things, then you're getting a false picture and it makes us feel better. You know, it makes people feel better who are nervous about more Latinos in this country. But it's a false picture. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, I point out because I see it. It's not because I'm theoretical. I see it on my streets. You talk to the people. Oh, yeah, your nanny's uh, undocumented. And, you know, I'm not paying taxes on her. And, you know, isn't that great? You know, and we don't, you don't hear that other side or that or those companies, you know, all across Texas, I am sure, who are using undocumented workers and, picking the strawberries, picking apples, and picking cotton, and they're not paying them very much. And that's why you can get cheap clothes and cheap strawberries and beautiful apples in your stores. And, and we're eating them, but, you know, we don't recognize that that's how it's happening. That's how we can, you know, keep our standards of living relatively high. One of the many ways in which you have defied the stereotypes, even now being defined in some cases as a bilingual Latino writer, but you're so much more than that because you're a German scholar as well, as is shown in your novel, The Nature of Truth. I really admire your efforts with the Hudson Valley Writers Group, and I wanted you to read, this is a very great story here, here on page 121 of Crossing Borders about your friend Rigoberto. Yeah, he's a good guy. I have a poet friend, Rigoberto, who is a member of Continta, an advocacy group of Latino writers, and I was having lunch with him at Artie's. I mentioned I would be glad to offer my co-op's private party room for the Continta party at the Associated Writing Programs Conference in New York next year. We were a few blocks from my apartment building on Manhattan's Upper West Side, and I wanted Rigo to see the party room and decide if it might be suitable for Continta. We strolled into the two-story lobby of polished marble and steel, and Natalie dressed doorman greeted me by name, and I asked her concierge for the keys to the private party room. I showed Rigoberto the room, big enough to hold the small weddings and bar mitzvahs, our carpeted two-story duplex, with its own kitchen and bathrooms and a view of the co-op sun deck and health club. As we walked out to Broadway again, Rigoberto whispered to me, Are you sure they'll let a bunch of Chicanos in here? I turned to him, surprised by his comment, and looked into his eyes to see if he was joking. And he wasn't. Rigo, stop thinking that way. You belong here. You should assume you belong here. We all belong here. That's one of our biggest problems. We do these pendejadas to ourselves even before others do them to us. Again, a very broad subject. Talk about your efforts to integrate Chicano writers at the Hudson Valley 
Writers Project and also just that work in general beyond what you've accomplished? I'm a writer in New York. I live here. And so I wanted to have some influence. And the Hudson Valley Writers Center is this uh, wonderful writers center in Westchester, New York, which is just about an hour, maybe an hour and a half from Manhattan going north. And I got asked to be part of it, you know, many, many years ago by Margot Stever and Don Stever, who are basically the founders of that center. And it was it was a train station that had been abandoned by Metro North. They had no roof. There were rats running around it. And Margot, one day, I was visiting Margot, who was a poet, a wonderful poet. And she showed me this place, which is very close to their house. And she said, I want to convert this into a writer's center. And I laughed. I think, this is, you know, this is a dump. Anyway, to her great credit, she and, and Don raised money, got the community together, and over many years, got Metro North to give them the building, raise funds to turn this eyesore into a writer's center. They started uh, having classes and workshops there. They had a reading series as well, and then uh, a, uh, a poetry imprint called Slappering Hall Press. When my first book came out, The Last Tortilla and Other Stories, they invited me to be on the board. And so I joined the board of the Writer's Center, and it was already going on by the time I joined, but she had you know, shown, shown it to me at different stages in its development. Don and Margot were always and have always been great to me, but not everybody at the, you know, who's on the board you know, was. I was the only Mexicano, the only Latino, in fact, the only minority on that board of the Writer's Center for many years. That's not true anymore, but it, it was true back then. When I first joined the board, there was a lot of heavy hitters in Westchester. Westchester has a lot of money. It's Rockefeller country, so you can imagine the, the kind of people <laughs> that are going to be on that board. A lot of them are not writers. Some of them are just business people and, you know, who love to give to the arts. When I joined the board, people tried to relegate me to what I thought would be junior and uh, somewhat tokenish positions, and I didn't take that. You know, I don't take shit from anybody, and I wasn't going to start taking it from the people at Westchester. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. I started focusing on readings and also on finances. You know, I have economic training, and, and I love finances. I do a lot of investments by myself and and been very successful at it. And, of course, it, you know, some of the people on the board loved what I was doing. Some of the people on the board did not. And I didn't care. It's board politics. And so I brought in, in terms of the readings, I brought in, you know, the great writers that I loved that had never been to Westchester. You know, people like Dagoberto Hilb, you know, Rigoberto Gonzalez, Maria Melendez, Helena Viramontes, Alicia Gaspar de Alba, you know, Rolando Hinojosa. I brought them here. I brought them here and we paid them. And they had great readings in Westchester and people... Uh, read their work, who had never been exposed to them. And so one of my missions, I thought, and it was not, I'm just going to bring Latino writers. I'm, I was going to bring great writers. They happen to also be Latino. That's what I saw, because I'm not going to just invite you because you're Latino and you've written a book. It has to be a great book or a good book and something that stands on its own as quality. So I brought in, you know, dozens and dozens, and not just Latinos. You know, I, I knew Peter Moss and... Uh, Bill Berkeley, and both of them had written war books. Peter Moss had written one on Yugoslavia and Serbia, and Bill had written one on, on African wars. And so we had a, a great war reading. You know, I also introduced the Writer's Center to Bridget Mullins, who's a wonderful poet and playwright. And we actually published Bridget's first poetry collection. And she she ended up winning the, winning the Whiting and, 
and uh, is a, a tremendous writer. But these are people I knew, so I brought in I brought in good writers. And since I knew a lot of Latino writers, a lot of those good writers, you know, were Latino. And there was a lot of conflict and issues on the board. I had to fight my way through to open people's minds, because just simply because you've never heard of Rolando Hinojosa or Dagoberto Hill. You know, read read the work. Read the work and take a look at it. Or, you know, if you've never read Rigoberto Gonzalez, read the work and tell me this is not a good poem or this is not a good story or this is not a good novel. And when I would expose, you know, the Westchester people to these works, they would open their mind, their minds. You know, it was there were some people there who were very open-minded. They just had never been exposed to that. So I saw my mission as doing that, as opening the minds of Westchester. And it's a great book crowd. People buy books. They they love reading there. But you also, you know, run against people who who are muy cerrados, who don't want to do anything. And and by the way, by the time I ended up my my service on the board, I was there for I think eight years. I, the last two or three years, I had been appointed finance director of the board. You know, you know, I was a money guy. You know, I had a lot of a lot, a lot of power. So, you know, once they saw that who I was bringing, the people I was bringing, and how I was helping with the finances and reorienting um, the classes to be self-sustaining rather than a money loser, you know, they saw this guy's doing good work. Give him more power. And so eventually my detractors just fell fell by the wayside. You know, I was trying to do good work for the center and and push it in different directions. And by the way, it's a, I, I don't know if you know this, but this is some sort of recent news. The Hudson Valley Writers' Center is honoring me in uh, November as one of their two honorees for their annual gala in Westchester. And I'm going to be one of the people being honored for their contributions to literature in the Writer Center. Wow, you've made a huge difference. <laughs> well, you know, well, you, you try. You you know, you, you just can't take BS from anybody and from people who don't know who you are. And, and you know, you got to push back. I don't believe you get respect by being a doormat. You know, you get respect by being right and by doing the work and by pushing back when you have somebody, a detractor, saying you can't do that. I'm very proud to say that two of the writers you mentioned, Rolando Hinojosa and Alicia Gaspar de Alba, have been on this series, So, and I really enjoyed speaking to them. You also point out in a later chapter in the book that your battle is not limited to New York. In fact, it's going on right here in Texas, page 154. I had a wonderful time at the Texas Book Festival, which was well-organized and full of lively literary parties. On Saturday, I walked through the white tents next to the state capitol, gathering handouts from commercial publishers, lit organizations, and university presses. My panel was not until Sunday, so this was my day to play. But as I stopped at the Texas Library Association's TLA table, and perused a yellow handout entitled, quote, 2009 Taisha's Annotated Reading List, a book list compiled by public and school librarians from the Young Adult Roundtable, YART. I noticed precious few Latino writers or subjects. In fact, as I counted and reread the book summaries, later confirmed by studying the books online at booksellers, only three were, were by or about Latinos. Three out of 68 young adult books recommended by the TLA. This fact was disturbing enough, but when I walked to the panel, 
on the Tomás Rivera Children's Book Awards with Benjamin Benjamin signs he forgot to say goodbye and Carmen Tafoya the holy tortilla and the pot of beans and the previous winner Francisco Jimenez signs and Tafoya's award-winning books are aimed at young adults both authors are from Texas both books are published in the time period covered by the TLA list 2007 to 2008 and both books were excluded from the list Margarita's Engels the Surrender Tree a Newbery Honor Book and Oscar Hijuelo's Dark Dude starred review from book list were also not on the TLA list and that's after a cursory look at 2008 as I sat listening to the panelists talk about fighting to have Mexican-American literature included in the canon of American literature, as I heard them talk about their struggles to reach young Latinos with stories that reflect their lives, I admired the careful words of Sainz, Tafoya, and Jimenez. But at the same time, I seized at the TLA. What was going on here? The juxtaposition between what the TLA was peddling at their table and the Tomás Rivera panel was jarring. My anger burst out during conversations at the Texas Book Festival. I asked for explanations. One well-known Texas writer said it was the morality police mentality of certain Texas librarians who enforced their morality more strictly with anything Latino, a sophisticated kind of ethnic discrimination. A Texas librarian said it had to do with the YART panel itself and who was on it and who recommended books, but even she was surprised that the TLA list contained only three books by or about Latinos. That's pathetic, she said. Please update us on the progress in this situation, if there has been any. Well, I think there has been progress, you know, and, and of course, you don't, you know, you never, you never get progress until you make noise, until you criticize, until you point it out, and you know, which is, I think, what you should do, what everybody should be doing. But sometimes people either don't have the guts or are not paying attention or or whatever. I don't really understand, you know, why people don't point this out. But immediately after this blog entry came out in 2009, you know, and it caused quite a borlote, by the way. <laughs> you know, oh, sure I got calls. I got, I, not only was it reprinted in several places, but I got calls from the, the, I believe it was the president of the TLA who said, Sergio, I hope you're not saying that we're doing this on purpose. You know, maybe we should have paid more attention to who was on the panel and the reading list. And, you know, they, they tried to explain away what, what they were doing. And, of course, so many writers wrote to me after this came out in 2000, I think, nine, and publishers wrote to me and said, you know, Sergio, you're absolutely right. Why are they not reading and recommending Latino, young adult Latino books when there are great young adult Latino books right now being published about Texas for Texans by Texas authors, and they're being ignored. So behind the scenes, people were taking sides and certainly paying attention. And I believe the list, you know, that came out the, the following year, you know, had a lot more Latinos in it. And the interesting thing I want to point out as well is that the actual Texas Library Association annual conference, they invited me. <laughs> so in 2012, in April, 
I'll be at the TLA conference talking about Latino literature then and now. You had to make noise. You had to point this out. And I wasn't trying to be mean. I love libraries, and I love librarians. But it doesn't mean every single librarian is going to be open-minded to finding new work, new literature, new voices that are out there. It could be simply they don't know, or it could be something more sinister. Like, uh, you know, if it's a Latino character and it's a little, there's something tiny bit wrong or something they don't like, they automatically exclude it from the list. I don't know. And one of the things I told writers who wrote to me who was saying, Sergio, I'm glad you're saying this, blah, blah, blah. Some very famous writers whom I will not name, uh, you know, Texas writers. I said, you know what? Why didn't you say this? You know, why didn't you say this? You know, because it's a responsibility, I think, of every writer to point out these discrepancies, these disparities when we feel Latino literature, great Latino literature, is being ignored. It's not just uh, Sergio up here in New York, you know, and people said, well, you know, I'm glad you said it. And I said, well, you know, they can't really harm me in, in New York too much. But the writers who are in Texas should be pointing this out. And maybe people don't want to be seen as, as uh, either truth-tellers or rocking the boat or hot Latinos or discontents. But I don't think you change things by conforming. I don't think you change things by looking at something that's wrong and then just swallowing hard and taking it. I think you change it by pointing it out and being right. You know, and on the list, I looked at the list and I looked at what was published that year during the list when the list was made and there was some great latino work that was excluded about texas by texas writers why and it, i simply asked that simple why you know and i was not trying to create such a borlote but i'm glad in many ways that it did because if it means now that they'll pay more attention to the work that's being created in texas by good writers who also happen to be latino and outside of texas you know, by great writers who happen to be Latino, then that's a good benefit. And so I think things do change, but as just as my experience with the Hudson Valley Writers Center, it doesn't change by being a conformist and by just simply taking it. You've got to point it out. You've got to get out there and fight, you know, for what you think is right and have the proof to back it up, have the logic and the argument to win people to your side. This is an interesting issue that you touch on in connection with your lecture at the Judge White annual lecture that you gave. Mm -hmm. And here on page 161... The trip was worth every treacherous mile. Before the lecture, I conducted a workshop with ESL students at Northern Essex Community College. The stories the students told me about their lives as Dominicanos in Massachusetts or immigrants from China and Bangladesh, were hilarious and poignant. We talked about how we have often been put down for having accents, or why even family members or neighbors might make fun of our dreams to educate ourselves. The reason I thought this was so interesting was ESL teachers all across the country, and I know you have done some of this, are not only encountering Latinos, but of course people from all over the world in this sort of ongoing melting pot. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, my brother is an ESL teacher. My brother, Rudy, teaches ESL in English at El Dorado High School in El Paso. And uh, my other brother, Oscar Troncoso, is a high school principal. In, in Anthony High School. So I think, you know, this ESL issue is something that they are facing day to day, and I hear about it, and I, I see, you know, all the time. 
And I think one of the things when I did that white fund lecture in Massachusetts, which is, a, you know, for me it was a big deal because of the people who had given that lecture before, people like Ernest Hemingway, Horace Greeley, Phillips Brooks, you know, some very famous people over, you know, Frederick Douglass, the guy who debated Abraham Lincoln. You know, he gave that lecture. This melting pot that you see in the classroom of Chinese and Bangladesh and Indian kids getting together with Dominicanos and Mexicanos and, and other Guatemaltecos, you know, and all trying to learn English and the commonalities that they see and that they face and the struggles that they face simply to, to become part of the American dream. It is something that we need to embrace and help instead of somehow be castigating them for trying to be part of this. You know, because I, I think one of the things I notice when I teach, you know, an ESL workshop or I get invited to do a, a talk, you know, with ESL students is that they work so hard and they are so respectful of the teacher and they come with, you know, in many ways old world values that have been lost too often, you know, when I teach a, a workshop full of uh, American kids, you know, who are just trying to get by the easiest way possible. So I admire the values, the immigrant values that these kids have and how they, over time, are just burning the midnight oil to learn English, to improve their lives, and to pick up their families. I have a lot of respect for that, and I think we, we should all should. Instead of simply just seeing them, oh, they have a funny accent or they can't speak English very well or they made a grammatical mistake and then just kind of pointing the finger and laughing at them. I think, you know, we need to look at ourselves and see, you know, how these people really are so important to our society and, and we need to help them any way we can. If you're an American and you know what this country is about and the history of this country of immigrants, you should be out there on the front lines helping these people learn English. You know, that's what the Statue of Liberty is about. You know, you go to Ellis Island, the millions that came through. You know, this country is about immigrants and helping them become American citizens. And they're desperate to be American citizens. They're desperate to learn good English. They just don't want to have the boot put on their face or be made fun of or relegated to the lowest rungs of society. You know, they want a piece of this pie. And, and frankly, I think they deserve it if they work hard and they do the job. You know, we should be helping them out. One more read, please. And sure. this is something that you and I definitely share in growing up, and that is a love of libraries. And the reason I wanted you to talk about this is because, as you know, libraries are one of those institutions whose funding is under threat all across the United States. Here on page 178. In retrospect, one main reason any public library is important is because it is free. It levels the playing field a bit. Even if you have no money, you can go there to explore ideas, to read about other times and cultures, to think. Yes, the El Paso Public Library gave me access to more books, but it also gave me access to a culture of sitting down quietly to read without disturbance. The library provided me not only with free books, but free space, both of which were invaluable. I suppose I could have found a quiet place in my house, and sometimes I did, but there was no guarantee that it would remain so. At home, I would be tempted simply to watch TV or play with my dogs. But in the library, not only did I read more, but I read more carefully and deeply. 
because I could stay there until my mind was exhausted. In many ways, those early years prepared me for the strenuous and extended concentration I would need for my studies in the Ivy League. I exercised my mental muscles in the library. And lo and behold, I transformed myself from a casual reader into a focused one. So it was more than just free books, but also free space and a culture that reinforced settling down, deep thinking, thinking and imagining and exploring with my mind. I am no doubt a writer today because I had a place to go as a kid where I knew stories were essential and where everybody also reveled in the wonder within books. There are two subjects that you cover here. First of all, developing the necessary study skills to be admitted to Harvard and to flourish at Harvard, and also the importance of libraries for everyone. Talk, talk about those subjects. This quiet time, this space that you need to really take a leap beyond, let's say, very casual reading. You know, libraries were so important to me as a kid. One of the things I did when I went to my abuelitas and listened to her stories is I would also go to the El Paso Public Library, the main library, which is in downtown El Paso. I would spend most of my Saturday there after I stopped by at my abuelita. And the concentrated, focused reading, which I think, unfortunately, we're losing with so much visual stimulation. You know, too many Xboxes make you kind of a ADD kind of a student you know, where you can't pay attention and focus for three, four, five, six hours on a book and really get into it or on a math problem or on a science problem. You know, so I think we need to be encouraging as parents this culture of reading quietly, of not disturbing, of getting deeply into your academic work, because that's how you will become a better student. So it's not just, I can go get a free book. I think all that is so essential. And we, we should be supporting our public libraries. You know, my wife and I give money every year to our public libraries. And we donate hundreds of books because we buy hundreds of books ourselves and my kids as well. We have books stacked up on the floor of our apartment. You know, we've run out of bookshelves. And our kids are are really good readers as well. Both Aaron and Isaac, you know, are constantly reading and and getting books and buying them. And then after the, the year is over, when we have a lot of excess books, we give them to the libraries. They sell them and they get money to help their staff and, and buy other books. And sometimes they keep the books themselves. And that's fine. You know, we, we love donating our books. But, you know, this public library system is so important for us as a culture to not become so superficial and so narrow-minded, to open our minds to not just concentrated work, but to other cultures, other languages, to improving yourself. You know, when I had no money in Isleta, I could go to the public library in El Paso and spend my day reading books. Wasn't that better than hanging out with a gang, you know, in Isleta, or doing mischief, or, you know, doing drugs? Of course it was. And so, you know, these libraries are havens, for fat little kids like I was, you know, who love to read and, and want to improve themselves and just want to find out what's available out there to read. So uh, I think we really have to not just be encouraging libraries, but also as parents be changing and turning off that TV and limiting. You know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a tough parent. In fact, my kids tell me that I, w- I was or am the toughest parent at their school. 
in terms of limiting their their TV time and their game playing time. They they can have it, but only on the weekend and only when they've done excellently in school. And by the way, not surprisingly, my kids read about one or two books a week, and they're excellent students. And it's not because they're brilliant; it's because the habits we've created in our house of being a reading household, of encouraging them to read, of giving them opportunities to read, of taking them to the public library. My wife, for years when they were small, they're now teenagers, but when they were toddlers, we would have library day every Saturday. So instead of sitting around and playing the Xbox or or the PlayStation or whatever it was, or the computer, we'd take them to the library and they would choose books that they wanted to read. You know, we didn't tell them what to read. They would choose what they wanted. And they find out that what you're reading is actually more interesting and more thoughtful and, you know, opens up your minds to other things. It's more interesting than what you're watching on TV. It's kind of a waste of time to be, you know, watching stuff on TV. You could be reading about Alexander the Great, or you could be reading a, a play by Shakespeare. Or I have a kid who loves fantasy. You know, he loves reading Philip Pullman. For example, so I think you know we need to show our kids by example by taking them to libraries and supporting libraries every single week. You know, and we started when they were before they were one year old because by the time they're teenagers, if you haven't done that, it's too late. And so now, of course, I don't have to tell them anything. In fact, uh, just yesterday, one of my kids said, "Can I have twenty bucks because I want to go buy a book at Barnes and Noble?" That's gold. That's freaking gold to me. I didn't tell him to go buy a book, but that's what he wants to do. He, you know, he could. Before school starts, he could be watching TV or wasting his time on Xbox. No, he wants to go get a book. That's what we need to do as parents, support our libraries and create this culture of deep reading, of focusing, and get away from the visual, media, useless, pointless culture that too often surrounds us. I wanted to ask you about at least one of your current projects. You're working on a book of border stories written by Latinos with my friend Sarah Cortez. Give us a preview of that, please. It's a book of essays, and it's uh, tentatively entitled The Lost Border. And Sarah Cortez is a great editor, and, and so you know, we, I had this idea, and she said, you know, we really should should do a book about this, you know, when I told her my idea, and so so we ran with it. We want to encourage writers to submit essays to this collection that focuses on how the border violence, the drug violence, in Tijuana, in El Paso, in Juarez, in, you know, in the Rio Grande Valley, and in, in other places, and how has it changed culture on both sides of the border? Uh, how has it changed the way we live, the way we interact with our familias? Because many of our people in our community have familias on both sides and spend time on both sides. And uh, much of that has been shut off and closed because the violence is so awful. We used to go to Juarez every single week, sometimes several times a week, not just to buy groceries, but to visit my tia Jovita or other family members or to go to my parents would go to the movies. They preferred Mexican movies, so they would go to Juarez every Sunday. You know, when I lived in El Paso, they would go to a dinner in Juarez. And Juarez and El Paso were so were one city, really, with people living and working on both sides and families on both sides. And all of that, I think, has been closed because of the violence. You know, my kids, when we went to El Paso, 
in December, they wanted to go to Mexico. You know, they their Spanish is really excellent now. They've learned it in school. I learned it on the streets, but they've they've actually learned it in school and are pretty much fluent. And they wanted to go to, to Juarez, and I said, you know, I, I can't take you there because it's too violent, it's too dangerous. I don't want anything to happen to us. So that kind of thing, how it's changed culture, how it's changed instead of having a binational, bicultural existence, are the kind of essays we are looking for in this new collection by Arte Público. And, uh, you know, to their great credit, Arte Público has really had the vision to say yes to this anthology. And, I, and you know, we've already gotten some great essays. And the deadline is October 15th of 2011 for submitting final essays. And then we'll make the final decisions after that. It promises to be, I think, a way to pay attention to how the border was and how it could be and also how it's changed. Sometimes people don't understand how much it's changed because of the violence, which is something recent. Any other current projects that you'd like to tantalize us with? Well, you know, I'm always working on something, working on several short stories, which I finished. Some of them have already been accepted by some different magazines. I'm I'm coming out with the Packing House Review, which has published several of my stories is coming out with a um, series of essays I wrote on going to Harvard. I think they're coming out in a few months. And also, actually, just recently, Random House Mondadori, which is, I think, the Spanish-Mexican imprint of Random House, is publishing one of my essays in a collection that's coming out in November of 2011. It's It's an essay on border violence as well. I'm working on a novel as well right now. But, you know, I don't really like to talk about that. About bigger projects until they're mostly formed, but I'm all you know. I don't. I'm never short of ideas, and luckily, it's just I'm really curious about the world, and I'm always reading. And I think to be a good writer, you have to read, and you have to read constantly, and you have to read not just literature but philosophy, economics, the good things that come across your desk, and be a curious individual. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm, I, I don't think I've ever had writer's block because. I'm constantly interested in the world in the different facets of it, whether it's a new biotech drug that comes out and I'm researching that simply to understand it, or a new writer from a corner of the world that I don't know anything about, and I'm reading their new work. Well, Sergio Trancoso, we have just begun to scratch the surface of your work, and uh, I look forward to speaking with you again when the book of essays uh, is published, and I really appreciate you spending so much time with us this morning. Thank you, Eric. You've been terrific, and, uh, you know, maybe I can, we can chat in Houston when I'm there. I look forward to meeting you soon. Thank you so much. Take care.